Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. If you would, turn with me actually to Acts chapter 1. As we continue in our journey through the book of Acts, it's helpful from time to time, especially we've been in this book uh, for many weeks now, it's helpful from time to time to sort of zoom out, take a 30,000 feet view of where we are. And uh, so I want to do that briefly as we set up our specific text for this morning. Look with me at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said to his apostles, right after his resurrection and right before his ascension and exaltation to the throne of heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In this verse, in chapter 1, Jesus gives the outline of the entire book of Acts. As Luke records this commission that Jesus has given, uh, he then writes and records the rest of the book of Acts through this outline of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so the first part of the book of Acts, which is what we're in right now, records Jesus' disciples bearing witness in Jerusalem. And so on the screen here is uh, an overview of this first section of the book of Acts, where the apostles are witnesses in Jerusalem. And I want to highlight a couple of things. We'll look at this again uh, in the future. I just want to highlight a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice that Luke, as he outlines and he records the events of the early church, especially this witness in Jerusalem, he alternates, there's this pattern of alternating between looking inside, internally, at the life of the believers, and then externally as the believers are interacting with and engaging in the community. And so we have internal, external, and it it alternates back and forth. And in each of these sections where Luke is focused on where the church is engaging their community, there's a pretty predictable pattern. There's signs. So in Acts 2, there was the signs of speaking in tongues at Pentecost. In Acts 3, there was the healing of the lame man, which is what uh, set off the events that we're looking at now. And so there's these signs, and then there's a response and an explanation. Well, so that happens consistently throughout this section as the focus is in Jerusalem. But one of the things that we see also as a thread throughout this first section of Acts is there is rising opposition from the Jewish leadership to the witnesses of Jesus. So at Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, there's signs, response, explanation, the gospel goes forth, no opposition. But in Acts 3 and 4, where we are right now, our text today, we're going to see that there is this opposition that begins. The Jewish leaders are starting to take note. They're starting to feel threatened. And there is some opposition beginning. It's mild, but it starts. Well, then in Acts chapter 5, as the disciples of Jesus continue to ignore the opposition of the Jewish leaders and continue to stay faithful to bearing witness to Jesus, even more opposition comes until finally we get to the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 with the stoning of Stephen and the great 
persecution that breaks out on the church, and there is the most opposition we see. So there's this thread of increasing opposition, and as we come to our text this morning, uh, we are in the middle of this, the, the sort of the, the aftermath of this sign of the healing of the lame man that happened in chapter 3, and the heat is just beginning to turn up on the disciples. The leaders, as we saw last week, bring in Peter and John and the lame man. They question them. They ask, by what name did you do this? And they answer that it was in the name of Jesus. The stone that you, the builders, rejected has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so now the leaders have to respond to what they have heard. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 22 together. And would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I've titled this sermon... Threatened by worshipers. Threatened by worshipers. And I chose that title because it has a double meaning. In our text, we see the Jewish council feels threatened. They felt threatened by worshipers. On the one hand, there, was these, there were these worshipers, these people who were praising God for the sign, and they felt threatened by this. But more specifically, they were threatened by Peter and John who were worshiping God. They felt their their power being threatened. They felt their influence being threatened. So the council felt threatened by worshipers. And as a result of their feeling threatened by these worshipers of God, the council themselves then threatened Peter and John. So these apostles were also threatened by worshipers. The council were not worshipers of God. They were worshipers of their own power. 
So the council felt threatened by worshipers, and the apostles were therefore threatened by worshipers. And these twin ideas both get at a fundamental truth, and it's the main truth that I want us to take away from this sermon today. And it's this. What you do is determined by what you love most. What you do is determined by what you love most. James gets at this idea in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What James gets at here is that any conflict between two people, and we certainly see a conflict here in Acts chapter 4, any conflict is fundamentally a battle of competing loves. What you do is determined by what you love most. It's true in this text as we see the council loving their power and that drives them to do everything that they do. It's true of the apostles. They love God most and it drives them to do everything that they do. But it's also true of you and me. What we do is determined by what we love most. It may even change from moment to moment. But in that moment, what we do is determined by what we love most in that moment. Do you feel threatened ever? It may be that it's because you fear losing that which you love. You feel angry. Well, might it be that you're angry because you're not getting that which you love most. What we do is determined by what we love most. Let's, let's see this truth played out on display in our text this morning. Let's walk through this together. So as we come to, the, to verse 13, right on the heels of Peter and John proclaiming the name of Jesus to the council in response to their questions, uh, the council hears this, and they're amazed. They're amazed that these men are so bold. They're fishermen. They're not seminary-trained rabbis. What? Where did this come from? How do we explain this boldness? Well, they explained it because they had been with Jesus. See, Jesus, too, had amazed the Jewish leaders by the way he was able to speak, even though he hadn't been formally trained like the rabbis. And so they looked at the apostles, Peter and John, and they said, well, they must have been like Jesus. They're just like him. He was amazingly uneducated, too. And they were right to understand, to perceive that they had been with Jesus. And this explained their boldness. Because they had studied in the seminary of Jesus, as it were. For three years, they sat under the teaching of Jesus. And not only that, in the last 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and exaltation to the throne, 
Jesus, we're told in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that Jesus spent his time, 40 days, speaking to his apostles about the kingdom of God. You can see that in Acts 1, 3. So they were right. The boldness, the way they were able to speak about the scriptures that came from the fact that Jesus had taught them. This miracle, though, put them in a bind. Because they heard this teaching, they, they, they sounded like Jesus, and it would have been nice to just dismiss them along with that blasphemer, Jesus. But then there's that pesky little lame man who, well, used to be lame, and now he's walking and leaping. They probably would have liked to have discredited the miracle. But, as we see in verse 14, they had nothing to say in opposition. They, they couldn't deny it. He's standing. So they send Peter and John and the layman, or the formerly layman, out of their presence, and they get together. Like, what are we going to do? How do we, how do we respond to this? We've got to deal with these guys. Because as they say in verse 16, as they're trying to figure out what to do, uh, this notable sign, it, it's not only visible, it's public. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem recognize what has happened. It's unmistakable. It's undeniable. We can't discredit it. What are we going to do? These people, these inhabitants of Jerusalem, these are our people. These are people we have authority over. And they are all amazed. The cat's out of the bag. What are we going to do to try and do damage control over what has happened? Well, what can they do? They can't stop the news of the miracle from spreading. That's, it's too late for that. So maybe they can stop the name of Jesus from spreading among the people. Maybe they can stop the name of Jesus from being associated with this miracle. Why would they want to do that? Well, the Jews had condemned Jesus. The one that the apostles just said, that it was his name by which this man was healed. They had condemned Jesus as a blasphemer. But the apostles are saying that this Jesus was the Messiah. And so if the miracle that's undeniable becomes associated with the name of Jesus, well, in their minds, that would give validity to the claims that the apostles are making. The miracle's undeniable. The claims of the apostles that Jesus is the one in salvation, if these two come together, well, then all the people are going to be led astray. We're going to be seen as wrong. They're going to be seen as right. And the council was precisely right to fear that. They were precisely right to feel threatened by that. Because the signs that Jesus did and the signs that he did through his apostles as he is on the throne in heaven, were meant to validate the message of the gospel. We can see that in chapter 2 and verse 22 on the heels of the speaking in tongues at, at Pentecost. Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Jesus was validated by wonders and signs performed by God, and the apostles are validated through wonders and signs performed by Jesus through them. 
So they were right to feel threatened by the name of Jesus being associated with this sign. Because furthermore, what Peter and John say is that this healing name is the saving name. They said that in verse 12 of chapter 4, that the name in whom this man was healed is the name in whom we have salvation. But it's not just that associating the name of Jesus with this sign would have meant that the council was wrong and the apostles were right. What the implication of that then would be, it's a threat to the council's authority. It's a threat to their power. Because not only is it just a matter of right and wrong, it also would have meant that the apostles were right to give the authoritative teaching that they were giving. Remember last time, they interrupted the apostles who were doing this teaching that they ordinarily were not meant to be doing at the temple. The temple authorities come in and they, uh, they shut this down. But if what they're teaching is actually correct, then that means that they have authority to teach. And that means that these Jewish leaders who are wrong... Um, don't have the authority to speak with, uh, or they don't, they don't have the ability to speak authoritatively from God. So they're jealous of the apostles. They're jealous of the fact that they are acquiring authority for themselves. And we see this explicitly uh, told to us in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, the disciples don't abide by the council's order not to speak in the name of Jesus. This makes them even more upset. And in fact, it makes them more jealous. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So they are jealous of these men who are speaking with authority. It's a threat to their power. And again, like we saw last week, the council is right to feel threatened by this because God was shifting the authority. He was doing a new thing. He was creating a new temple in which Christ was the cornerstone, the one that they rejected, in which the people of God are the living stones that are built up, in which Christ is the high priest, not Caiaphas, and on whom the, or the, the authority of this temple is the apostles and the prophets. It's their authoritative teaching that is where God places his authority no longer with these leaders. And so they were right to feel threatened as if their authority was being challenged. So, in light of all this, verse 18, they command them not to teach in the name of Jesus. That ought to do it, right? Look at their response in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So see, the council is trying to put the pressure on Peter and John. They're trying to put pressure on them by using their authority, command them, don't do this, because we said so. But Peter and John take that pressure and they flip it right back their direction. What Peter and John do is they, they look at the leaders of God's people. The leaders that are supposed to be leading God's people to obey God's word, God's way. To praise God for what God does. And he, they say to them, 
if you think that your authority is so great that we shouldn't listen to you rather than the God that you're supposed to be pointing us to, that's on you. That's between you and God. And this is brilliant because it exposes the main problem that the council had, the consistent problem. They weren't considering God at all. The leaders of God's people, the ones who were supposed to be leading in worship of God, the ones who were supposed to be most trained in God's word and God's ways, they weren't considering God at all. In fact, they were directly opposed to the God that they claimed to worship. After all, they crucified the one that God exalted. Uh, they couldn't even praise God for this undeniable act of healing. All their people recognized God's hand when they saw it. All the people were glorifying God for this unmistakable, undeniable miracle. But the leaders couldn't even bring themselves to do that. They weren't considering God at all. Instead of recognizing the unmistakable work of God, they just worried about how it would threaten their power. And look at verse 20 as Peter and John continue. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We are not able not to speak. What we have seen and heard, they say, undeniably comes from God. And what we have seen, what we have heard, comes with an obligation from God that we tell others about it. So before God, we are not able not to speak. Because what had they seen and heard? Because they weren't just saying, no, we won't stop this doctrine or stop making these claims. No, they were bearing witness to something real, tangible, that they saw, that they heard, that was physical, that they touched. They saw the resurrected Christ. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. And so as they are bearing witness to this unmistakable miracle of the resurrection, they say before God, we cannot stop talking about this Jesus who has made us witnesses of him. Because if this is true, if Jesus is raised from the dead, we can't be silent. If Jesus is raised from the dead, that changes everything. They had seen him with their own eyes. They had heard him with their, own, with their own ears. And so they had to proclaim him with their mouths. So then in verses 21 and 22, the council threatens them some more, rattles them up a little bit. But they couldn't punish them, the text says. And at one level, it's because they had no basis to punish them. They hadn't actually done anything wrong. But it's important for later on that we recognize they didn't have a basis to punish them yet. They were actually setting up the ability to punish them later as they now have given them an explicit command not to speak in the name of Jesus. The next time they do it, then they, uh, they're doing something similar to um, uh, contempt of court. 
And uh, so therefore they have a basis to, to imprison them later on down the road. But at this point, they didn't have a basis to punish them. And what, but what Luke really wants us to know about the reason why they didn't punish them is because of the people, he says in verse 21. They found no way to punish them because of the people. If they had punished the men through whom this unmistakable, undeniable miracle had occurred, the one that all the people are praising God for, they would have had a PR nightmare on their hands. So as much as they would have liked to, they had to not punish Peter and John at this point. So to to sum up everything we've seen, the council was threatened by worshipers, worshipers of God. And in response, they tried to preserve their power. They did what they did. They did what they could to preserve their power. But even though Peter and John were then threatened by worshipers, worshipers of power, council, even though they were threatened, they couldn't stop speaking about Jesus, whom they loved most. What you do is determined by what you love most. As we consider that truth, as we consider what we've seen in Acts 4, I'd like to draw our attention to two points of application. Number one, beware of worshiping power as God instead of worshiping the God of power. Beware of worshiping power as God instead of worshiping the God of power. Everything that the council did was motivated by the fact that they were worshiping power as God. The council couldn't deny the miracle as much as they would have liked to have. They couldn't deny the miracle and they couldn't punish Peter and John because it would have lost the people. If they had denied the miracle, the people would have abandoned them. No, it's, un, it's undeniable. If they had punished Peter and John, they would have lost the people. They said, no, 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 we're with this guy. We're with the miracle workers. And to lose the people was to lose their power. So as, uh, whenever they were uh, not denying the miracle, whenever they were not punishing Peter and John, they were just trying to preserve their power. So they, they conceded that the miracle was real in order to preserve their power. But also their their show of aggression, forbidding Peter and John to speak in the name of Jesus. That too was driven by a worship of power because speaking in the name of Jesus would have been a threat to their power. So everything they did was motivated by worshiping power as God. But not only what they did, also what they didn't do was motivated by worshiping power as God instead of worshiping the God of power. What didn't they do? Well, they didn't glorify God along with the people for this act of healing that had been unmistakably done in front of their eyes. What didn't they do? They didn't believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation as the 5,000 had done, as Peter and John called them to do by declaring that there was salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. They didn't do these things because they weren't worshiping the God of power. They were worshiping power as God. So how do you and I experience that dynamic in our lives? 
Let me just give you a couple of examples to consider of when we might be tempted to worship power as God instead of worshiping the God of power. Uh, Consider in parenting. When we sin against our children, if we worship power as God instead of worshiping the God of power, we will be unwilling to admit our sin to our children. Because any sign of weakness might threaten our authority. But what if instead we worshipped the God of power instead of trying to preserve our authority and worship power as God? Well, then we would most gladly boast in our weakness because when I am weak, he is strong. Instead of being afraid to show weakness, what if we confessed our sin regularly as a way to point to Christ who saves sinners? What if we let our helplessness be a platform on which the power of the name of Jesus could be put on display? We have little choices before us every day. Are we going to worship power as God and seek to preserve it at all costs? Or are we going to worship the God of power and celebrate what he can do despite us? Let me give you a a personal example, okay? So we have our new associate pastor, Dalen Pearson, over here. He's come, starting to get to know people. People like him. People are trusting him. He's counseling people teaching people. People are starting to go to him for answers to their questions instead of me. Wait, wait a second. That person would have come to me before, but now what's he, what's he saying to them over there? So I have this choice, right? Do I worship power as God? Do I worship the God of power? What, what would it look like to worship power as God? As my authority is being threatened well, I start to, you know, micromanage. Well, you know what, let me, let me sit in on some of your counseling sessions just to make sure that I'm okay with what you're saying. Let me, let you show me that outline before you teach and let me see that and let me control the narrative. And if that sounds like the council trying to control the narrative, then that's exactly right. But what would it look like to instead worship the God of power? Praise God that he has sent us a gifted brother who can minister to people. Praise God that he has given us someone who has gifts that I don't have, answers that I don't have, knowledge that I don't have, who he can use for his glory when I have nothing to do with it. Praise God for that. That is the kind of choices that we are faced with every day. The choices between do we want to hold on to our little authority, our little power, our little influence, Or are we more excited about what God can do for his glory despite us? Beware of worshiping power as God instead of worshiping the God of power. And number two, remember that speaking with gospel boldness comes from witnessing gospel beauty. Speaking with gospel boldness comes from witnessing gospel beauty beauty. Did you notice 
What Peter and John said motivated them to continue to speak in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 20 again. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John weren't just merely obligated by a command, by a should do this. They couldn't help but speak because they had seen something glorious. They had heard something wonderful. And so let, a, let that be an instruction to us that if we see a lack of boldness in ourselves, in our speaking of the gospel, the solution is not obligation, guilt. I don't need to just think about all those people who are going to hell because I'm not doing what I should do. That's not going to work. It's true, but it's not the motivation that we see in Scripture. It's not going to work. Guilt, command, browbeating. And let this be a lesson to disciple makers too. When, when we are trying to encourage someone and we see a lack of boldness in their gospel proclamation, what's going to motivate them is not command. You've you got to do this. It's not guilt. No, for Peter and John... That was not what motivated them. Obligation was not what motivated them. Guilt was not what motivated them. They were preaching, as H.B. Charles Jr. likes to put it often, they were preaching as, or they were rather not preaching as paid advertisers. They were preaching as satisfied customers. They were proclaiming because they had experienced Jesus. They had seen the resurrected Jesus. They had touched him. They had heard him. He had changed their lives. And likewise, when you and I have experienced the transformation of the gospel, we won't be able to not speak about it. For example, if you hear someone expressing bitterness in their heart towards someone who wronged them, if you hear that but you yourself have seen in your own heart the power of the gospel to transform you and to save you out of your bitterness, and you know that you have the hope that they could have, you're not going to be able to keep from saying, well, let me tell you about how I used to struggle with that. I used to struggle with forgiving others, but, but then God changed my life when he forgived all of my sins, and he transformed my heart and showed me what forgiveness looks like, and, and he is now training me to know the joy and the grace of forgiving others just like he did through the cross of Jesus. I, let me tell you about how Jesus can transform and save you out of that. You see, when you've seen the gospel transformation in your own heart, how it's impacted your life, and then you see others who are struggling the same way used to, you used to, you won't be able to help but tell them about Jesus. Uh, or another example, I, I was able, in the Lord's providence, to speak to a woman this week whose husband had been disabled. And she told me that he was angry at God for allowing that to happen. And I got to tell her, well, your husband is right that God allowed that to happen. But you need to know that the God who allowed that, who is sovereign, is also the God who is loving and wise 
and we see that nowhere as clearly as we do in the cross of Jesus. The God who allowed that to happen to your husband allowed his own son to experience the greatest evil ever committed against a human being. And he was in control every step of the way because the sovereign God who was in control of that was also the wise God who had a plan and the loving God who used the death of his son Jesus to pay for the sins of the world. And if he can do the greatest good ever accomplished through the greatest evil that was ever perpetrated, you can trust him with your suffering too. You can trust him with what he allows in your life too. And when I shared that with her, you know where that came from? It didn't come from a sense of obligation or guilt. It came from the fact that I've seen that. I've heard that. I've been angry at God. I have been hurt by what God has allowed to come into my life. I've known that frustration, and I have seen how God's loving, wise sovereignty has changed my heart, has revolutionized the way that I see everything that he allows to pass through his hands and into my life. I have seen it. I have seen the gospel change everything. So I couldn't help but say, oh, you've got to know this hope. You've got to see how the gospel transforms this. What you do is determined by what you love most. If you love power or anything else more than God, uh, what you're going to see are attitudes and actions that are not godly. Anytime we see attitudes, actions that are not godly in us, it's because we are loving something more than God. So if you see that, what do you do? Look to the cross. See the work that Jesus did to atone for your misplaced love. Hear the words of Jesus that defeated sin and death. It is finished. Witness the love that he demonstrated for you. And then watch as your love for him grows. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that apart from your grace, we love all of the wrong things. We blind ourselves from seeing you at work. We fight for our authority and influence and power. We fight for what we think is ours, all the while missing the glories of who you are. So Lord, I pray that we would let the reality of our own sinfulness drive us to look 
and to hear. To look at the cross and see love displayed. To hear the good news. To hear how you have justified us. To hear how you are sanctifying us. To hear how you freed us. How you will glorify us. Lord, I pray that as we are changed, as we are transformed, as we experience and witness gospel beauty in our lives, Lord, that we would join Peter and John in saying, we cannot not speak. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.